Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Glad you're here on the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Jim, we have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today, and I'm guessing pretty much every single listener knows what the good martini is going to be. Uh, short-time listeners, long-time listeners know that uh, one of our favorite martinis is when really, really bad guys get what's coming to them, and that's exactly what happened at the Baghdad airport on, well, Thursday evening our time, very early Friday over there, and that is where... The head of the Quds Force, one of the most dastardly figures in the world, met his fate. Uh, here's the AP version. The United States killed Iran's top general and the architect of Tehran's proxy wars in the Middle East in an airstrike at Baghdad's international airport early on Friday. The targeted killing of General Qassam Soleimani, the head of Iran's elite Quds Force, could draw forceful Iranian retaliation against American interests in the region. We'll get into that in a little bit later in our bad martini. But, Jim, this is a guy who's been in this position since the late 90s, so a little more than 20 years. He's in charge of orchestrating all of the attacks from Iranian militia groups that targeted and killed American forces, hundreds of them during the Iraq War. He was up to no good again. Uh, he's in charge of uh, orchestrating with all these different groups from Hezbollah on down in Syria and Lebanon, throughout the Middle East. This guy was nothing but bad news. He was up to killing more Americans. He got killed, and he wasn't the only one that got killed. The strike also killed this guy named Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, deputy commander of Iranian-backed militias in Iraq, known as the Popular Mobilization Forces. So uh, two for one, and we got one of the biggest fish out there for the Iranians. Good job. Yeah, I mean, you could actually argue that this was 10 for 1. Uh, apparently it was two vehicles with about five guys each, and all of them were fairly high-ranking in either uh, the Quds Force or these various pro-Iranian-affiliated militias on the ground in Iraq. Uh, the ones that attacked the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. Um, it was, you know, there was a photo and, and you know, reporting from on the ground that said uh, right where a window had been smashed and where the attack, they had written in graffiti, Soleimani is our leader. So it's not like, not like there's any doubt <laughs> that this guy was involved in very recently in U.S. attacks. Obviously, the Quds Force was involved in helping anti-American insurgents in Iraq to build IEDs and estimated anywhere from 200 some to 600 some U.S. soldiers are dead because of uh, the Iranian efforts to support those groups and provide them with explosives and bombs and stuff like that. You mentioned Lebanon, you mentioned Syria, anywhere Iran had territorial ambitions and power ambitions, you would see Soleimani. Um, this is the guy who, you know, you, you've seen the term being thrown around this morning of him being the indispensable man of the Iranian regime, arguably the second most important person in the entire country. Um, probably I mean, he, he's involved in their foreign policy. He's involved in their intelligence community and he's definitely involved in their military. Uh, but also, as I said, support for all the various proxy groups, Hezbollah, Hamas. Um, he's basically the personification of Iranian foreign policy. And he's been around in this for a long time. You mentioned in his position from the nineties, but basically he was active in the Iranian revolution from being a very young man. Um, and, you know, this is arguably one of the most important Iranians on Earth. Undoubt Every administration has recognized this guy as an enemy, but various accounts have said that the Bush administration and the Obama administration hesitated to attack, to try to take him out, uh, in part because of the, the fear of the consequences, uh, that this would be seen, um, pick your metaphor, uh, a punch to the face, a punch to the crotch. You know, this would be hitting the Iranian regime really, really hard. 
Well, last night we did it. And in along the process, we also took a whole bunch of these other pro-Iranian uh, militia leaders. Um, I am sure that the mullahs in Iran are reeling this morning. Uh, there's you know, footage on Iranian television of some of their leaders openly weeping. They never thought this was going to happen. And for everybody would say, ah, you know, this is, you know, you take out one of these guys, they'll replace them. Sure, they've already named a new commander of the Quds Force. But, you know, not everybody is built equally. Um, you know, bin Laden, uh, you know, was replaced as leader of, of Al-Qaeda, but you haven't seen Al-Qaeda be the same kind of force. Certain leaders have a certain, you know, leadership ability that is not easily replicated, whether it's charisma or command or strategic thinking or, or insight or persuasiveness, whatever, you know, whatever we brought to it, there was not another Qasim Soleimani right behind him ready to step into this job. And so for the, you know, th this is the biggest blow to Iranian ambitions probably in decades. Um, it is certainly the hardest punch the United States has thrown at the Iranians in a really long time. Maybe you could compare it to Stuxnet uh, sabotaging their, their nuclear program. But really, this, this was a shocker. And, and it's good for the United States, but it has some very big consequences, which I guess kind of naturally leads into our potentially very bad <laughs> martini. Indeed. But before we exit the first one, the biggest salute here, of course, goes to the U.S. Armed Forces for uh, not only pinpointing where these uh, nefarious people are, and that's the kindest word I could possibly use, these horrible terrorists, troglodytes, as some would say, uh, but the absolute precision execution of this was beautiful. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, you thought your ride to the airport was tough? <laughs> the traffic on that road, it's a killer. All right. Well, let's move on here to our bad martini now, because uh, there's plenty of hand-wringing going on, and some of it's justified, some of it's just political. Uh, it's fun to watch the Washington Post, uh, fresh off calling... Uh, al-Baghdadi, an austere religious scholar, uh, now referring to Soleimani here as the most revered military leader, uh, once again using laudatory language there. And then you got folks like Connecticut Democratic Senator Chris Murphy saying Soleimani was an enemy of the United States. That's not a question. The question is this, as reports suggest, did America just assassinate without any congressional authorization the second most powerful person in Iran, knowingly setting off a potential massive regional war. And even Ben Rhodes, uh, Obama's uh, national security director, the deputy, uh, was very upset that Congress was not consulted here, as was Nancy Pelosi, uh, who said that an airstrike that killed Soleimani was not authorized, uh, Congress not consulted on the decision, and she also worries that it could provoke a further dangerous escalation of violence. So, Jim, while the uh, hand-wringing over congressional consultation for one strike is quite laughable, especially considering what happened during the Obama years in a months-long operation in Libya with no congressional authorization, among other uh, campaigns. Uh, the issue of uh, potential escalation here is one worth talking about, uh, because clearly Iran is already talking trash. Uh, Khomeini going on Twitter, or at least somebody on his behalf, uh, talking about major revenge uh, in, in response to all this. We'll see what uh, they actually are capable of doing. Hopefully it's not much, and hopefully we've got a good bead on what their plans are. Uh, we certainly had a good bead on where he was yesterday. Um, and uh, there's some concern about sleeper cells in the U.S. and other places in the West. So uh, the idea that Iran's going to just take this and, and, and go back into their hole is, is certainly unlikely. But um, obviously, this was a target of opportunity. We took it. We succeeded. The question is, what comes next? So what does come next? Yeah, uh, you know, probably nothing good. I, I, I suppose it is possible that this would spur some sort of um, rethinking in, in Iran's political leadership to make them say, you know what, this is getting escalating really fast. 
let's calm things down and let's turn inward. But I, I, I wouldn't count on that scenario. It seems pretty unlikely. Uh, history tells us that the Iranians, when they want to hit somebody for, or lash out at someone in, in anger over some alleged provocation, they will use terrorism as a tool. We saw the drone strike on the Iranian uh, Saudi oil fields earlier this year. We saw two strikes on Iranian tankers. Listeners with long memories may remember the, the tanker war back in the late 80s, tail end of the, uh, the Reagan administration. They were putting mines in the Strait of Hormuz. Obviously, we mentioned they have proxies like Hamas and Hezbollah. They could strike towards uh, Israel. But I think it's also worth noting uh, the Iranians certainly are not above using terrorism. And, and it's, you know, terrorism on U.S. soil is not outside the realm of possibility. They haven't succeeded in this. Uh, but we know they definitely have been sniffing around and, and been thinking about this sort of thing. Um, I think they recognize that would be a huge provocation towards us and that we would respond extraordinarily strongly. Maybe this is the sort of circumstance they cross this. You know, we, that's kind of our unspoken red line. Um, maybe they cross this at this point. Maybe they probably they stay in the region. Um, but you got to wonder, you got to be worried about all U.S. forces in the, in the Middle East region. You got to worry about the folks working in our embassies. Uh, the U.S. State Department said this morning they want all Americans to leave Iraq. Uh, apparently there were reports that the uh, various pro-Iranian militias may be looking to kidnap Americans. Um, we're going to pay a price for what we did last night. This is a big deal. And um, I guess maybe the interesting question will be, you know, I, I, I'm very curious to see if there was any force on this earth. Maybe the Russians, maybe the Chinese, somebody who is not an ally of us, but who the Iranians would listen to, who would reach out and say, hey, you don't want to get pulled into an all-out war with the United States. I mean, maybe these groups would like to see it. You know, already we've seen oil prices go up a bit this morning. But um, look, all-out war between the United States and Iran would be bad for everybody. Now, you could argue we've been in a low level, a cold war of sorts with the uh, Iranians pretty much since the 1979 revolution. Um, I was ta- you know, somebody was saying, you know, are you ready for war with Iran? And my point was, you know, what, what do you think has been going on when it comes down to, you know, Kobar Towers back in the 1990s? Um, you go back to the, as I mentioned, the tanker war. You go back to strikes, uh, the strikes in Lebanon on the, U- the Marine barracks in 83 and the U.S. Embassy back there. Both of those were directed by uh, the Iranians. Kobar Towers was, it was Iranian Hezbollah, helped by the Iranian government, Iranian agents. All the attacks on our guys in, in Iraq over the years, uh, and most, probably the most unsurprising and unnerving one was their statement that in, before the 9-11 attacks, they let the hijackers go through their country and did not stamp their passports so that they would not attract attention from Saudi authorities. Um, Iran is a, you know, hip deep, maybe, maybe neck deep in terrorism for a very long time. And the chances that they're going to just let this pass are not particularly good. By the time people hear this podcast, there is a chance that we will have seen some form of the Iranian response to this. It's not going to be good. Is this worth taking out Soleimani? Probably. You know, it all kind of depends on what happens. Um, we've taken a major player off the, the board. We've sent an extremely strong message to Tehran. Um, we've basically made very clear that you are not safe. And if you decide to take actions that, you know, threaten Americans, we can take you out. Maybe that is, you know, the, the sort of thing that makes the, the Iranians say, all right, this is this is time for us to back away from the table, take our winnings and, and you know, lick our wounds. Or maybe not. Maybe this this uh, escalates the fight even further. We can only hope for uh, uh, things to not get too bloody and too bad. And, uh, you know, uh, exercise a little bit of caution, everybody. I'm sure various police forces and major cities and landmarks are on a little extra extra high alert this morning. Knowing that, uh, you know, the world's, as Brad Thor put it yesterday, simultaneously yesterday, the world became a safer and more dangerous place at the same time. 
And with all the domestic unrest in Iran right now, uh, I expect them to be completely whipping up the propaganda uh, behind this to try and uh, get the people distracted from how the mullahs and their uh, political cronies have completely destroyed the country economically and otherwise and trying to focus them on on a common enemy again. Hopefully it won't work, but uh, they've certainly been able to do that before. Yeah, I, I, there were some reports of, of if you're frustrated with the regime, um, you, you're pro- in Iran. In Iran, you're probably if you're an Iranian, you're probably quite happy this morning. Um, the most powerful so. guys in the country, you know, one of them is now a smear on the highway outside Baghdad, and everybody else has to realize, well, wait, if the Americans can hit him there, they theoretically could hit anybody anywhere. Um, this was a huge accomplishment for U.S. military and U.S. intelligence. I'm hoping that our sources are every bit as good as to what the Iranians want to do next. Look, we probably made it a little more likely that this regime topples in the not too distant future, but uh, you know that's still a, it's still a very heavy lift. And you know, my prediction that 2020 was going to be a relatively uh, uh, quiet year is is already disproven. Yeah, it's only January 3rd, and we've already got quite a few fireworks. Some of them literal. Let's move on to our uh, crazy martini now here, Jim. And uh, far away from uh, war against the leading international sponsor of terrorism, let's talk about the 2020 campaign. Yesterday, we bid a fond farewell, tongue-in-cheek, of course, to Julian Castro, who is no longer running for president this year. And then a little bit later on Thursday, we thought we saw another also-ran exiting, but ah, not so fast. It's been a while since we've seen her. Marianne Williamson graced us with her presence at a few early debates. She talked about the dark spiritual forces, and my personal favorite was uh, her response uh, to the question of what's the only, if you could only get one thing done, Chuck Todd asked at one of the debates, uh, as President of the United States, what's the one thing you would absolutely make sure to get done? And here was Marianne Williamson's answer. Your first issue that you're going to push you get one shot that it may be the only thing you get past what is that first issue for your presidency my first call is to prime minister of new zealand who said that her goal is to make new zealand the place where it's the best place in the world for a child to grow up and i will tell her girlfriend you are so on because the united states of america is going to be the best place in the world for a child to grow up Well, girlfriend, your campaign is not doing too well. Uh, You had to lay off everyone from your national campaign staff. But, Jim, you would think that would mean the end of the campaign. No, 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 no. In a statement uh, released by our campaign, Marianne Williamson says, I'm not suspending my candidacy, however. A campaign not having a huge war chest should not be what determines its fate. The point of my candidacy has been to tell the heart's truth, and that does not cost money. Forging a new path for my campaigns is going to be necessary if we're ever to forge a new path for our country. So then she goes through uh, the importance of a conversation between a candidate and a voter and all the reasons she's not getting out of the race. She says there is an inherent value in talking about all these things as a presidential candidate. In my mind, the fact that they couldn't make it into the machine of modern politics is not a reason to stop talking. If anything, it's a reason to keep talking. And that's what I'll do as long as we have the resources to do it. In the meantime, it's amazing what you can do with volunteers. So, uh, Jim, Marianne is running on fumes or something. <laughs> so, listeners will know we've we've kind of at least I've kind of had a soft spot for Marianne Williamson since she first appeared on the debate stage, and everyone was like, "Who is that woman?" And then shortly thereafter, said, "What on earth is she talking about?" <laughs> and she was just kind of this delightful when she broke out the Ouija board and conducted the séance and talked about dark spiritual forces. You know, everyone's well. You could even say that you know, yeah. She does occasionally hit a nerve and say something, yeah, that there is something wrong uh, kind of with this country spiritually. There's something wrong with our souls. Uh, we're not in a good place. 
But now it's gotten kind of ridiculous. She hasn't qualified for any of these debates. She's not doing it. a lot of debates. She's coming in at zero. I've been expressing irritation the last couple of days about all of these Democratic candidates, serious Democratic candidates, who seem to have think that you can run for president on a little budget, um, that this is supposed to be cheap, that you're supposed to become the next commander in chief and leader of the free world. And you can do it on a couple hundred grand. No, no, I'm sorry. This is a you want to be the, the next president of the United States. You have to have the ability to raise tens of millions of dollars. I'm sorry you think that's unfair, but this is the way the world works. Think about it. You're trying to change the mind. You're trying to reach out people who are not necessarily inclined to pay attention to politics. And you're trying to persuade them that you are the best choice to lead the country. And you're trying to do this for tens of millions of people all across the country in all 50 states. And you think you can do this on a, on a, on a cheaply, on a shoestring? No, it doesn't work that way. I have often griped about candidates who we all know don't have a chance, but it looks like it'd be fun. They've got nothing else to do with their lives. It keeps them in the, the public spotlight. They get treated like they're serious. And you end up with, you know, like my favorite choice for 2016, Jim Gilmore, who in the uh, run up to the New Hampshire primary kept insisting in televised interviews, I am going to win the New Hampshire primary. He said this after in the Iowa caucuses where he won 11. I'm not saying 11%. I'm not saying 11 precincts. I mean 11 votes in the entire state. <laughs> um, I feel like in this process, we all kind of are, we're all being sucked into somebody else's uh, uh, delusional fantasy. This is what's going on here. And I, this is now we're beyond the bookstore stage. This is just her going around the country and doing things. She doesn't have a campaign. This was cute and funny and kind of amusing and thought-provoking for a while. But it's time to get this seriously. And it looks kind of ridiculous to say, well... I don't have a campaign anymore, but I'm still traveling around the country doing speaking engagements. So please invite me. I'm sorry. That's not a presidential campaign. That's a speaking tour. Stop pretending. Let us all move on. I'm sorry. The dark forces have won, Marianne. Love did not win. She'd be smarter to drop out and keep doing the speaking tour. She'd make a whole lot more money that way. And she it's might even point. get a little Although, more attention. Yeah, it just, you know, I guess you know, actually she's wealthy enough. She doesn't need it. She just, she just likes the audiences. And you're right, if she just decided to become this roving motivational speaker, hey, God bless you, Marianne Williamson. You know, you, you were fun, but, you know, the, the grown-ups have work to do now. Marianne Williamson did outlast Beto O'Rourke, Kamala Harris, and a whole bunch of other people in this race, though. Yeah, let's observe, like, outlasting, all you have to do is not quit. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, Kamala Harris probably was literally going to run out of money and have, have you know, staffers not get paychecks. Like, that's why she, everybody, for her, once you lay everybody off, you don't really have a campaign. Whether or not you formally announce you're withdrawing from the race, doesn't, yeah. It's like an M. Night Shyamalan movie. You've been dead for quite some time. <laughs> okay, maybe the better example is Yang. Uh, Yang's still going strong, and all these other people are gone. 16, there you go. 16 million for Yang in the last Good for game. you, Andrew Yang. Yeah. We'll Even if, as I wrote yesterday, you're probably not going to win a single primary in the first four. No. Or a, de- a single delegate. A single delegate, yeah. He was out there yesterday talking about how uh, markets and, and individuals, uh, you know, stuff that uh, Democrats don't usually like to talk about. So there's an audience for him. It's just a matter of whether there's enough of an audience to, to really make a dent. But uh, he's been one of the few refreshing parts of this campaign. But on that note, Jim, our short week is over. See you Monday. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Karumbas, Radio America. Please subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Leave us a nice review over at iTunes. And tune in again Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Have a great weekend, everyone.